Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am going to cover in this audio Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. The context is this, chapter 1 was all about how God has revealed himself through creation, through natural revelation, through nature to Gentiles, so they are without excuse. They know, they have to know that there is a God who created the world, and they suppress the knowledge of that God in unrighteousness, and therefore they're without excuse. They have not justified themselves, and they're going to be subject to God's judgment. Now, we go to Romans 2. Now, at the end of Romans 2, going from verse 12 to the end of the chapter, it's clear that Paul is talking about the Jews. He talks about the Jews and their relationship to the law. It's questionable here in verses 1 through 11 whether Paul has switched from talking about Gentiles and their just judgment in verse in chapter 1, and is he now talking about still talking about Gentiles in verses 1 through 11 of Romans 2, or is he switched to talking about Jews? It's debatable. I'm going to take the position that Paul has switched to talking about Jews because it's needed. Go, chapter 1 is for the Gentiles, chapter 2 is for the Jews. It works nicely. But also there's some internal reasons for that, as I'll mention as we'll go through. So now our topic in verses 1 through 11 is God's righteous judgment, the phrase that's used in this passage by Paul, God's righteous judgment. In other words, it's correct. It is right. It is just for him to judge everybody who doesn't believe, whether they're Jew or Gentile. So we start with verse 1 in Romans 2. Therefore, any of you who judges is without excuse. Now the question is, I'll stop right there at verse 1. Anyone of you who judges is without excuse. Who is he talking to? And as I just said, there's a split of opinion on that. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown say that Jesus is talking, uh, that Paul is talking about the Jews. So Paul is saying here, therefore, anyone of you Jews who judges is without excuse. Now, that makes sense because the Jews have a law. They have laws that say that all of these sinful things, lying, cheating, stealing, carousing, gossip, slander, murder, and all that kind of stuff. We have laws against that. We have the, the Mosaic Law, and, and it, would, it would be real easy to get self-righteous about it and say, see, we have the law, therefore you Gentiles are sinning. And then Paul comes back at him and says, wait a minute, it's not good enough just to have the law. You have got to not do the things that the law prohibits before you escape judgment. So let's assume that, that he's talking to the Jews. Now, John Gill says, no, he's talking to Gentiles, he's referring to moral pagans, quote-unquote moral pagans, such as Socrates, Cato, and Seneca. They are all, t- all the time going around judging this and judging that and saying this is wrong this and that's wrong in their high philosophical tone. But nonetheless, they still practice all that same kind of stuff. I mean, after all, Socrates, I think, you can read between the lines, and practice a little bit of homosexuality. He was in bed with Alcibiades one time, and Alcibiades, he repulsed him at the time, but you could tell that uh, there was something fishy going on there. That was in the symposium, I think it was. And so John Gill says that Paul is saying, hey, you moral Gentiles who are appealing to the law of conscience, or to, the, or to the natural law, if you will, you judge people for saying things are wrong, but you practice them, therefore you're a hypocrite. Well, that that's true, whether Paul is referring to the Gentiles here in verses 1 through 11 or not, moral pagans, but that is true regardless of who, what Paul is referring to here. John Gill says it could be referring to magistrates who punish for sin, judges. They punish for sin, yet do the same sins. Well, I, that's an interesting idea. Or Gill says he's just talking about everybody, Jews, Gentile, magistrates, whoever. And that that's reasonable also. But we're gonna, we're, I'm just for the sake of argument going to say that Paul is talking about Jews here. 
And he's saying, you Jews that judge everybody according to God's law are without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. In other words, you Jewish, you Jews, you got the law, and the law says don't do certain things, but you're doing it anyway, therefore you're hypocrites. That's a, when you says you do the same thing that the, that the law that you're judging other people for, that's just a polite way of saying you're a hypocrite. Now notice this is a different sin that Paul was talking about in Romans 1.32. In, in that verse, we read this, Though they know God's decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now there, Gentiles look at certain evil practices, and they know that they're wrong, but they do them anyway, and then they approve those who do them. Well, that's a different sin here, because now we've got these Jews who know that certain things are wrong, but they don't give approval. They judge people who are doing those wrong things. The Gentiles in chapter 32 of verse 1 gave approval to the to their fellow Gentiles who were doing such horrible things. But the Jews in Romans 2, 1, they see their fellow, well, their fellow Gentiles or Jews, doesn't matter, their fellow humans doing things that violate God's law. And then they say, no, 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 you shouldn't do that. They don't give approval. They rather judge and condemn that. So it's two different sins, but it's sins nonetheless. Now, what are these things? Paul says, when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, when you judge, you do the same things. What things is he talking about? Well, if you go back to the previous chapter, read in verses 29 and 31 of Romans, these are the things that Paul is talking about. Unrighteousness, evil, greed, wickedness, envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, malice, gossip, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. In other words, every evil that you can think of. So, it's one thing to denounce those evils. It's another thing to avoid practicing those evils. you got to do both before you're going to be justified before God. Romans 2, verse 2, moving on. Paul continues, we know that God's judgment on those who does such things is based on the truth. We know. So basically he's saying, I'm not against, I'm not against you condemning those things. That's fine. But you need to not do them also. But he doesn't, he hedges himself. He says, no, but I'm not saying that what you're, what you're doing is wrong by condemning those things because God does, will judge those things. And his judgment is based on truth. Now, notice that Paul is appealing to an internal knowledge of the of his believers in Rome there. We know. He's appealing to those who have a common philosophical ground with him. When one is a Christian, it's much easier to recognize the justice of God's judgment. And so he's appealing to that. He says, look, you know that God's going to judge that evil. And the implication is, so don't practice it. Don't practice the evil. Paul is not trying to convince unbelievers of the truth here. He's shoring up believers in the truth. God's going to practice judgment on this stuff. So don't do it. Now, he uses that phrase we know many times to show that there's sort of an internal moral compass that people have, or there's an internal knowledge that Christians have given to them by the Holy Spirit. It ain't all through their head, folks. It's through their hearts, through the Holy Spirit. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, speak to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. We know that the whole world is going to be subject to God's judgment. Romans 7.14, for we know that the law is spiritual. 
but I am made out of flesh sold into sin's power. Romans 8.22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Romans 8.28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. 1 Corinthians 8.1, about food offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge and knowledge inflates with pride, but love builds up. 1 Corinthians 8.4, about eating food offered to idols, then we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. 2 Corinthians 5.1, for we know that if our temporary earthly dwelling is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal dwelling in the heavens not made with hands. 1 Timothy 1.8, but we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. So what can we gather from all this? We can gather that oftentimes an exhorter of gospel truth, like Paul was, merely needs to appeal to what the Christian that he's talking to already knows in his heart. He just needs to be reminded of it, and we all need to be reminded. I've, I've been reading, well, we've been reading here Romans 1 and Romans 2 about the wrath of God. I need to be reminded about the wrath of God. The whole Christian church in America needs to be reminded about the wrath of God. It's not that they don't know it, but it needs to be brought to their attention. I just saw a book the other day. I don't know who wrote it. It's called Enjoying the Wrath of God. And I said, well, that title is deliberately provocative given the state of the current culture and of the church's compromise with the culture. I told the brother who showed me the book, he was raised in an Assembly of God background, and Arminian, and Arminians, Baptist, Methodist, Pentecostals, Charismatics, they tend to not talk about the wrath of God. And so it was very encouraging to me to see him reading this book. Romans 2, 3. Do you really think, Paul continues, any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same, that you will escape God's judgment? Now, Paul doesn't say whether it's temporal judgment or eternal judgment. It doesn't matter. If you are a hypocrite, you condemn other things and yet do those things and then ask Jesus to forgive you, well, then you will escape God's judgment because the judgment would be put on Christ instead of you. But the point is, is that that sin is going to be judged. And if you're a non-believer and you say, oh, you shouldn't sin, you shouldn't cheat, you shouldn't be a homosexual, you shouldn't be a murderer, and, and you shouldn't lie, and you say all that stuff, and you do it, well, guess what? You will not escape judge God's judgment. And this is obvious, and that's why Paul says, do you really think, I mean, come on, guys, this is so obvious, and so here you are doing such obvious hypocrisy. You're practicing that which you're condemning the Gentiles for. A lot of people think they're going to escape judge God's judgment. Our whole culture does how many times do you see people say, well, baseball player dies. Well, he's looking down on, on the field, watching the game. This is, of course, his son or somebody, you know, that's still playing the game. And I'm playing this for you, Dad. And he points up as he hits a home run, walk, runs around the base and gets the home plate. And he points his finger up to his to his deceased father who's inspired him all his life. Now, I'm going to tell you something, folks. It ain't an automatic slam dunk. But just because you die, you're going to heaven. You have to be covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. There has to be a great exchange. Jesus' life for your life, his death for your death. If you don't have that, you ain't going to make it. But a lot of people think they're going to make it, and they will escape God's judgment for their sins. Matthew 7, 3, Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? It's hard for us to judge our own sins. This is the human condition, folks. Me, you, everybody. Luke 18, 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Oh, that's a Pharisee, and how many of us have been Pharisees at certain times in our life? It's the easiest thing in the world to fall into. We need to avoid that. We need to look out for that. We go to verse 4 in Romans 2. 
Paul continues his talk to the Romans, and I assume he's talking to the Jewish Christians in Rome. They were a minority, by the way. The majority of the church was Gentiles. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, this is what happens. You know, you see a lot of sin, and you think, oh, I guess it doesn't matter. God's asleep. He doesn't. He does not upset by all this, all this homosexual marriage crap. He doesn't care. So, therefore, it must be okay. He doesn't care about all this threesome stuff and this transgender stuff. It must be okay. Well, the reason that God doesn't judge stuff like that instantly is because He wants to give us time to repent. It's not because He condones the sin and the crime. Paul, let me repeat this, verse 4. Do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience? God, I mean, Paul just finished talking about judgment in verse 3, and now in verse 4 he's talking about God's restraint from judgment, his patience. The word patience means it takes a long time to get hot. That's what the, literally the Greek means. Like a hot piece of iron takes a long time to get hot. God takes a long time for God to get hot in his wrath. So he's kind, he restrains, and gives us time to repent. But God's kindness is intended to lead us to repentance. It is not intended to sanction the sin that's being carried out. Now, the kindness of God is intended to lead us to repentance. Now, that repentance could be just be stopping doing sin. It might not be a saving repentance, but I don't believe that. I believe it's talking about intended to lead you to salvific repentance, repentance for salvation, repentance unto salvation. It's not just repentance, oh, I'm sorry I did that. I'm going to reform my life and be moral from now on. No, it means I am sorry, Jesus. Forgive me for my sins. I know I deserve hell for what I've done to you. So please cover my sins, expunge them, wipe them out, nail them to the cross along with all those ordinances against sin. Nail them to the cross against me as a sinner and nail them to the cross and deliver me from my sin. We go to verse 5 in Romans 2. But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, Paul just talked about how God is showing kindness and restraint by not judging for all your sins. and But you misinterpret that kindness, that patience, as a license to continue to sin. And what's happening is your heart is hard. It is unrepentant, and you are storing up wrath. In other words, it's just getting added to your account. Click, 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 click. The more you sin, the more you're going to get punished. In the day of wrath, whenever that is, when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Now, Paul is using very strong language here, talking about the wrath of God. And he's writing to people he doesn't know. And he's, getting, and he's trying to prepare himself for a future visit. And then he starts talking about, hey, you guys are storing up wrath. Paul was no wuss, friends. He would not be afraid to walk around in America and condemn the sickening filth of America's sin. He would not be afraid to condemn it and receive the inevitable blowback from the Twitter mob, the millennial madness of people who think they know everything and they don't need God and they can just live with in whichever way they want, chasing money, chasing Exciting experiences by diving off the side of mountains with bungee cords, climbing rocks and falling into the cliffs below, climbing skyscrapers, looking for cheap thrills, sexual and having sex with anybody and whatever they want to, whenever they want to, in public or private. No, you keep doing that and God doesn't judge it. Well, sooner or later, it's going to be judged. His righteous judgment is revealed. Now, when is this day of wrath, when the righteous judgment is revealed? The NIV 
Study Bible says at the end of time. There was judgment in chapter 1. People's foolish minds were turned to darkness, and then their idolatry lit. They left God and got into idolatry. Then their idolatry led to sexual immorality when they bore the penalty in their own bodies. They were inflamed with passions and so forth. That's temporal judgment. Sin brings about temporal judgment. Here, it's, it's I've always taken it this way, and I assume the NIV study Bible is right. It's judgment at the end of time. However, I don't know why in the world it couldn't refer to wrath in the day of wrath when God finally decides to judge the temporal earthly sin that's going on. When the cup of his wrath is filled up, he pours out his wrath on the nations. I mean the same thing. What was it, the Canaanites? It the in the Old Testament, God put up with them for a long time. He says, okay, guys, you ain't going to repent. You're destroying yourselves. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish the job for you. I'm going to wipe you out. They stored up wrath until the day of wrath was revealed for them. So I don't know why. We cannot say that God might not pour out his wrath anytime he wants to, not just at the end. Now, I th- you've got to be careful about this. You know, a lot of times you see all the sin in America and you say, well, God's wrath's going to come on America. Well, it is, but we don't know when. Because remember, his patience has given us time to lead to repent. I mean, because the wrath has not fallen on America, the economy's good. Everybody's at their throats. We're in the middle of an impeachment trial. Everybody's screaming and hollering at each other. But at least the economy's good. Well, this has all given us time to repent. And if we don't use the time to repent, but we continue in our sin, there's going to be a day of wrath, and it, 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 at, at least at the end of time. But I wouldn't be surprised if it doesn't happen before the end of time. Now, Paul here mentions your hardness and unrepentant heart because of your hardness. There are three kinds of hardness. This is a neat little scheme that John Gill has arranged here. There are three kinds of hardness of the heart. First, there's a natural hardness of the heart. We're all born with a hard heart because of original sin. Second, there's an acquired hardness of heart. Our heart gets harder and harder as we practice sin. And then there's a judicial hardness of heart because at some point in our sin, God will harden the already hardened heart even more as a matter of punishment, as that's standard theology, as you know. One more point before we leave this verse. Paul says that you, people who are not, who are disobeying God's righteous commands, because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath. A good way to look at that is wrath accumulates. When you're storing up wrath, that means that wrath is accumulating in storage, if you will, waiting for the time when it all comes busting out on you. It accumulates, just like money in a bank account. It's earning interest. And the more you sin, the worse the wrath gets. All right, we'll continue as Paul continues his Jeremy ad against sin and warnings against the wrath of God coming on people. Verse 6, Romans 2. He, God, will repay each one according to his works. In other words, you're going to reap what you sow. Now, this does not contradict Paul's emphasis everywhere in the Scripture that salvation is not by works. Of course it's not. But it also shows that works are important. In fact, if you could do nothing but righteous works, God would reward you with eternal life. Now, you can't do it because you're a sinner, but if you could, you would have eternal life. Now, there's no such thing as salvation by works, but there sure is something called damnation by works. This is my idea, my phrase, damnation by works, because every sinner in the world is going to get exactly what he deserves. When the day of judgment comes, whenever that is, he's going to get repaid for that. There is perfect justice in the universe. Now, it's often stated that there's no perfect justice in this life, and that is true. There are so many people that get away with murder and in this life, and there are so many righteous people who suffer unjustly. But, folks, it ain't all over 
in this world because there's going to be in the next world there's going to be perfect judgment there's going to be payment for all the sins that's done now he also could be talking about uh, we people will be repaid according to the works he could be talking about the works of saved people because after all faithful without works is dead so if you believe in god they're going to be good works James 2.17, in the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. James 2.26, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. So we have believing faith, we have works, and then God's going to repay us, not by salvation, but just by rewards in heaven, according to our works. We see this judgment according to works in John 5.28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this, because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. Now, I'm assuming this is at the great white throne judgment at the end of time. I know pre-mills put the good judgment for good things at the beginning of the millennium. And a thousand years later, the bad guys get judged at the white, great white throne judgment. I do not believe that because in John 5, 28, 29, there's no mention of it. But let's just say John skipped over it. I mean, it doesn't matter. The point is, your eschatology doesn't matter here. The point is, is that... Believers are going to get judged with good things. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, you've done something good. Now, it doesn't mean you get the resurrection of life because of those good things. You're saved because of Jesus' work that he's done on the cross for you. However, you are going to enter into resurrection life. There's going to be a reward for that, and it's going to be really, really good. But those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment... In other words, you get, they, they're going to get raised, and then they're going to get judged. And they're going to have to pay for every evil thing they did. Revelation twenty eleven through 12. Then I saw a great white throne, and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence, and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great, and the small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the book. Now, of course, again, that's also controverted by pre-mills and, and amills and post-mills because of who's standing there. But the point is, the dead were judged according to their works. So, we see that judgment based on works is important. Even though we don't believe in salvation by works, there is a judgment according to works. And, and even though we emphasize that we are saved by grace and not by works, that does not mean that works are not important because there's rewards for good works once you get to heaven, after you get saved. I mean, that's just the way God set up the universe. I mean, even temporally, pagans who try to obey the law, and if they do it somewhat, they're not saved, but their life, lives generally, you can't make an absolute statement, but generally they live relatively happy lives. I mean, sometimes you see pagan marriages that are halfway decent because they don't do things that are bad. And as a result, they get rewarded according to the natural laws that are in the universe. Likewise, Christians, they might be saved and go into heaven, but they decide they're going to go out and fornicate a little bit. They're going to pay a price, bad price. Go to verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 in Romans 2. I'm in the middle of a sentence, so let me go back and read verse 6 again. He will repay each one according to his works. Verse 7, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. I'll stop right there because it sounds like we are going to get rewarded with eternal life by doing good. And that directly contradicts what Paul says all over the place in Romans and Galatians, for example, that we are not saved by our works. Well, what that means is, is that 
He will repay each one according to his works, eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good, because they've already been saved, they seek glory, honor, and immortality. He just assumes he's talking about the works that are being done by people who are being saved. And those people are going to be rewarded with eternal life. Now, let me read Galatians 2.21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. So he's not saying that you get saved because you keep the law. And, of course, as we see as we go through the book of Romans, obviously he doesn't believe in salvation by works. But what he is saying that if you get saved and, and then if you do good, because remember, getting saved means you can do good works. And when you do good works, you seek glory, honor, and immortality, your Im immortality, and you seek the glory of God and the honor of God, good things, good works, you're going to get rewarded with eternal life. Verse 8, but wrath and indignation to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth, but are obeying unrighteousness. So there's the judgment for the bad works, wrath and indignation. I think that's two synonyms that, says, that say the same thing, wrath and indignation. To those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth. In other words, non-believers who look after themselves. And if you're a non-believer, that's what you're going to do. You're going to, look at, you're going to look after what pleases you. Verse 9, affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. There's your answer. You think you're going to get away with sin because the kindness of God is, he's restrained himself and hasn't judged the sin? It's coming. Affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. And this is an interesting phrase here. This affliction and distress comes first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Why do the Jews get affliction and distress first? Well, it's because salvation came to the Jew first. With rank comes great, with great privilege comes great responsibility. <laughs> so, and so Paul is saying, look, just because you have the law, just because you have the law, you're going to get judged. Having the law is not good enough. You've got to not practice the things of the law. And, of course, later on he's going to say and it's impossible for you to practice law because you're a sinful human being, so you need Jesus. Jesus' obedience to the law and his sacrifice on the cross in order for you to, to get saved. But having the law in itself is not good enough. You've got to do the works of the law. And you don't do the works of the law without the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good in verse 10. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. So the Jews first had priority. Let's talk about that. Did they have priority in time or priority in privilege? Or both, I think, both. The Jews were the only nation on earth to ever enter into a covenant with God. So they were the first to receive salvation. They were chronologically first to hear the gospel. They were also the first in privilege, too. By being chronologically first, they were privileged to have the gospel before the Gentiles. This was well known, John 4.22. Jesus speaks to the Samaritan woman. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know because salvation is from the Jews. Matthew 10, 5 through 6, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road leading to other nations, the Gentiles, and don't enter any Samaritan town. Instead, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Salvation went to the Jews first. Now, the Gentiles were not left out. I mean, for example, Jesus himself went to Syrophoenicia once when he had to leave Galilee because things were hot. And he preached to the Gentile woman, you know, who said, give me the crumbs from the table. I'm a Gentile dog, but I'll take the crumbs from the table. Then he went to Decapolis, which was a Gentile area, and he, and, he, and he preached over there, too. It wasn't like he was against the Gentiles. It was just that, hey, the way in God's providence and plan, he, the Jews were the ones who were going to receive salvation first. God had to break into the world somewhere to do it, and he chose the Jews to do it. But if they don't obey what God told the Jews 
affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first to the Jew. And again, that first to the Jew makes me think this is why Paul is referring to the Jews here in, in Romans 2, 1 through 11. Again, that's controversial. Some people don't, like John Gill, don't believe that, but I, I think that he's talking about the Jews here. We go to verse 11, there is no favoritism with God. And that's a verse that makes me think that Paul's taking, talking to the Jews because the Jews were often talking about their favored position because they had the oracles of God. They had the temple. They had the history. They had Moses. They had the prophets. They had the law. They had all that stuff. And therefore, they're better than everybody else in the world. They're better than those Gentile dogs. And we're going to get saved just because we're Jews. Well, no. Paul says there's no favoritism with God. And I think he's, he's aiming at Jews here. This, of course, is a basic teaching of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is obvious. I mean, how many of those parables did Jesus tell them that were aimed at the Pharisees about, you, you know, we invited you to the wedding feast and you didn't want to come, so now we're going to go out to the highways and byways and bring some people in. You know, all those parables, they're all aimed at the, the arrogant, pharisaical attitude that the Jews thought that salvation belonged to them and nobody else. Let's read Acts 10, verses 34 through 35. Then Peter began to speak. This is in Cornelius' house. He's already had the vision with the unclean things coming down. And God said, Peter, eat those unclean things. It doesn't matter anymore. We're not going to make these legal distinctions between those who eat shrimp and those who eat don't and those who eat pigs and those who don't. I want you to go preach to the Gentiles. He goes and the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles. They all start speaking in tongues just like they did at Pentecost. Then Peter began to speak. Now, I really understand that God doesn't show favoritism. And again, the, the favoritism that was most mentioned in the New Testament is the favoritism of Jew over Gentile. And Peter says, no, God doesn't show favoritism. But in every nation, in every Gentile nation, the person who fears him and does righteousness is acceptable to him. That's Peter speaking in Acts 10, verses 34 through 35. God does not show favoritism. Now, let's make a good application get beyond the Jews and Gentile question, let me read from John Gill here, quote, It will not come into consideration at the day of judgment of what nation men are, or from what parents they are descended, nor of what age and sex persons be, nor in what state and condition they have lived in this world, nor will it be asked to what sect they have belonged, and by what denomination they have been called, or whether they have conformed to such and such externals and rituals in religion but only whether they are righteous men or sinners. And the only, that's the end quote, and the only way that somebody can claim to be a righteous man is because of the borrowed, or the alien righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ, alien to himself, but belonging to Jesus, and transmitted to the sinner so that he can stand in the righteousness of Christ before an angry God and say, God, I love you, I'm, I, I, I'm clean, my sins have been washed away, and God can look at you and say, you're right. Come on into the kingdom. And on that happy note, we finish Romans 2, verses 1 through 11. We will start in Romans chapter 2, verse 12 in the next audio and begin the discussion of the Jews and their relationship to the law. Hope you stay tuned for that audio and hope you enjoyed this one. 